You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. On today's show, I have financial expert and the brilliant writer, Alan Farrington. During our discussion, Alan provides critical thought experiments and challenges to many of the ideas that plague Wall Street and business schools when it comes to common investing mantras. We get into deep discussions about performing economic calculation and the metrics that many use to look at economic performance and what their flaws are and how people should think about their approach if true. This is a conversation that you won't want to miss. So with that, here's my interview with the thoughtful Alan Farrington. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Alan. And Alan, I have a confession here. I'm a massive, massive fan of this book. Thank you massive fan of that book. And here's the reason why is because you take a sledgehammer to so many traditional (laughs) valuation (laughs) thoughts, ideas, like anybody who just got an MBA, I would highly recommend that they pick up your book and read it because it'll pretty much take a a sledgehammer to their MBA. But I say this all in a really good way because it's like we've been so indoctrinated in how people think about valuation and people think about markets. And I just think that some of your points are so important. So I want to start off the conversation with the start of your book, which when I read this, I literally was like pumping my fist in the air because I was I was so thrilled with the way that you started this book off. You start off with a Joe Rogan quote, and you're talking about martial arts. And Rogan says that we had no idea what any of these martial arts like what were the best or whatever until 1993. So talk to our audience, explain to them what you're getting at with this. Tell them a little bit of the story sure. and why, yeah, yeah. why you find this to be so important. So even explaining that there's, there's quite a bit of backstory to get to that point. Picking up on some of the things you've already said in the introduction, even besides the Joe Rogan point, even besides the, the MMA angle. So there is actually a co-author on the book as well. His uh, name is Sasha Myers, a very good friend of mine, former colleague. We met on the job when I still worked in TradFi, which I did for a long time until, until quite recently. And I bring that up for a couple of reasons. So one is that he wrote that chapter, actually. I, at my insistence over probably about four or five years, I was telling him to write this. And actually, the book turned out to be a good excuse to finally get all these thoughts down on paper. I'm partly saying that to excuse any ignorance of the minutiae of MMA that may come out from teasing out this discussion, uh, but also to give him credit. Like it is, it is his yeah. idea. I think it's a very good idea. I, I was very excited when I had, I'll take slight credit for saying it was my idea to put it right at the start of the book because I thought that the ideas it introduced were important enough, but also accessible enough. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the rest of the book is not very accessible. Before going into the MMA bit, though, I also wanted to mention that the praise you gave it in that little introduction, which was very kind, by the way, thank you very much. We've never, at least not publicly, at least not to me, I don't think I've ever had exactly that praise before. And I realized as you were saying it, it's because of what your background is. Mm-hmm. But I'm so glad that you that you did say it that way. I, I, I won't be able to quote it verbatim, but like, you know, like everybody who got an MBA should now read this and like unlearn yes. all of that. Which is is very nice of you to say because I think that was largely on purpose. This is maybe something we can get to in a bit. I don't want to go too far off the quest because you want to talk about the MMA quote. 
But why I wanted to mention that give Sasha credit as well and highlight where we used to work it is very much a reflection of the the ethos of our well his current employer actually but i'm a, a bit more liberty to discuss it i suppose given i've left my former employer their attitude towards it was an investment firm and their attitudes towards investing towards financial markets as a whole you know how best to approach them how best to think about them a lot of the book probably not the mma part but a lot of the rest of the book is kind of a distillation of conversations that we'd just been having with each other for about four or five years. As I mentioned, the MMA angle was kind of incidentally amusing that we, we managed to get that in. But it's, it's very much, uh, it's come from a, a place of sort of frustration, if not hate in some cases with, you know, what we were seeing in our jobs. And, and then obviously there's a, it there's comes, a whole other, Alan, tie it, that into Bitcoin too. <laughs> it comes out in the book that. And hate is such a strong word, right? It comes out in the book, but it comes out in such a deep, critical thinking, just bludgeoning of these. <laughs> good. I like that. I'll, of, I'll try to reuse that. Yeah. Of these past like mantras that you just mm-hmm. hear from business schools yeah. and just like. That people believe because everyone else believes them. And yes. very few have actually thought about why it might be true. And, you know, we like to think that we have and we've discovered they're false. Yes. But anyway, should I get back to the MMA part? Yeah. I wanted to make sure I mentioned that before we <laughs> eventually moved on. Sasha's idea about MMA, which, uh, which he told me a very long time ago, we spent a lot of time teasing out. I encouraged him to uh, find a way to set up the rest of the ideas that we go into in, as I said, kind of less accessible detail later in the book. His idea about MMA is that it is a truly free market. And in particular, it's a free market of historical interest because until, was it 92, 93, Mm -hmm. until UFC was set up, it's actually, it's more UFC than MMA, just to be clear. It's like the forcing together of all the, of all the different styles to see what actually wins. Prior to that, there had really been no way to know which fighting style actually was superior because of the way that almost all of them were taught and more gate kept, I suppose, like the way the competitions would, would run almost what's, what's kind of nice. What's interesting, what's unique about UFC is forcing all of them to come together and to to actually finally find out which one is the best. And so the reason we include it is that, I mean, the rest of the book is basically about, it's not really about Bitcoin, that's kind of clickbait, but it's about capitalism and it's about free markets. Um, and I think it's as much about the philosophy of these, like how to think about them and how to evaluate knowledge within them and what the role and importance of knowledge is in these systems. And so that's really the focus in the in the chapter about MMA, that this UFC was an experiment in attaining knowledge mm-hmm. because this it forced this knowledge to the fore that had never really previously existed. I think it may be an interesting way to kind of weave toward, or I guess weave away from MMA itself, weave towards whether it's economics or whatever other topics we, we talk about is that it couldn't have been settled any other way. I think that's, that's like the nice clean way of describing the one particular angle of thought that we have that you could not have deduced the answer to this. There's nothing mm-hmm. intellectual you could have done to arrive at basically which is the best fighting style. 
you had to run the experiment and you had to, you know, have some kind of appreciation of what it was you were watching to then infer the knowledge that came out of it. And so it's, it's all those threads, practicality versus intellectualism, kind of dynamism in terms of forcing the issue rather than just static analysis, being very clear about what you do and don't know. Like these are the threads that we then take into economics and capitalism and so on. But we really like that MMA is a, is a great kind of accessible introduction to that. I recently read this book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And I've heard, that's been highly recommended. I've never read it, but it's, yeah. It's really good. But in essence, he's just getting at like a lot of people have convinced themselves they're, that they're playing some type of finite game. And I think when you're talking about like martial arts, they have bound themselves, like if you're doing karate or you're doing, uh, you name it, right? They're bound by the rules, the movements, the whatever. And they were playing this very finite bound game. And now they were being forced to go into what Simon Sinek would refer to as an infinite game where there's really no rules. Mm. The rules are you you just got to win, right? <laughs> like you, yeah. you got to get out there and you got to beat your opponent with whatever mechanism or whatever school of thought you want, want to apply to it. And it's so representative of free and open markets, right? Which is yeah, yeah. where you go in the book next. And so, yeah, you go into the next chapter, and then you're talking about the efficient market hypothesis, which, holy Lord, man, like... <laughs> Boo, hiss. You, you have a quote. I want to read this quote because I, for me, this just like really represented what you were really getting at with this chapter. You say, prices reflect all available information. If you believe that, you've already been hoodwinked. So get into that idea and really kind of just some of your broader thoughts on this idea of the efficient market hypothesis, which is basically a religion in these schools, right? Like, I don't mean to put you on the spot too much. Well, I kind of do because I don't want to put myself on the spot too much. <laughs> I, I, it, might, it might be helpful if I think you would be better at providing this. I can try if you want. I, yeah. I'm not trying. It's not like a gotcha or anything, but if you define the efficient market hypothesis first. Yeah, I mean, for my, I just know exactly what I'm arguing against because that's another thing that it's. I think you're right. It's kind of become so much of a religion that a lot of people in finance, I should say, obviously not in the wider world, they operate as if it's true and will repeat sort of some of the very downstream consequences of it, but without actually addressing what the hypothesis is itself. So I I just want to make sure that we're being clear about what it is I'm now attacking. I would maybe even take it a step further. I think that the mantra that's repeated in academia is uh, around the efficient market hypothesis is all available information the market has, has already synthesized. And therefore, it's impossible to outperform the market. So you might as well right, not even right, try. Okay. So, so right. yeah. So this, this idea that you can't, I'd make it a bit more formal just because it then makes it easier to attack that not just you can't possibly outperform, but that any outperformance is luck yes. I think is also a yes. key part of it uh, yes point. because all the information is in the price like that's what the market does is turn it all into into something that uh nobody could possibly know more than i guess which does have it does have kind of a, a nice appeal to it this is i'm maybe interested in your thoughts on this rest actually i'm gonna defend it i'm gonna well, <laughs> i love little, this that I think the reason a lot of people fall for this is that it superficially resembles a lot of, 
I wouldn't say mantras exactly. I'd be a bit more positive than that, I guess. Truisms, let's say, about free markets in general. It kind of taps into a lot of the same sentiment around objecting to central planning, say, that, you know, the central planner could never possibly know anything approaching the combined knowledge that emerges when people engage freely in a market, which I believe I would subscribe to that as a proposition. But it sort of, it superficially uses something like that as a starting point in its own argument, but it arrives at something that I would argue is just complete nonsense. Well, and you, you get into this idea of what I value and what you value are, are very different. And if I have a ton of buying power behind this thing that I value, which might be somewhat nonsensical, right? The reason why I'm buying a particular stock or I'm buying whatever in the market, in the free and open market, my actions don't have to be efficient, right? They might mm-hmm. actually be extremely inefficient. And if I'm applying a ton of retained earnings and buying power behind that incentive, that self-serving incentive, which isn't, you know, if you lined up a hundred people, they would all greatly disagree with the rationale behind why I'm doing something. There's no way that the overall system that we're talking about can possibly be inefficient if an actor like that exists inside of it. And so I I go even that I go further. I'd say that the the way in which the word efficiency or efficient or whatever is being used in this context basically doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of the root of it. This manifests in in a number of ways. I think one being that if you subscribe to this, you, you kind of have to think something like all of the data that markets generate somehow perfectly captures it. Like you don't need any more information. Like that is the information about yeah. what's happening which I think is kind of insane. And I think the alternative approach, like the the first principles place you need to start to unravel all of this is realizing that there is nothing in a market that hasn't originated with just people making decisions, individuals deciding what to do with their time, money, whatever. Right. And you, you have to start there and build up rather than start at the data and build down. Because I think well, this might be a little bit harsh. It might be a bit of a straw man in this case. But I think what proponents of the efficient markets hypothesis would, they probably wouldn't do it publicly. But you know what they would be thinking privately when they're trying to explain this to themselves is that if you start with the data and you work down and you see that people are doing things that sort of go against whatever the aggregate of the data suggests they ought to, whatever they even mean by that. I mean, even that I think is kind of silly, but they're, you know, they're, they're outliers in some particular direction. They would pathologize that behavior as inefficient. Mm-hmm. And that's almost what they, they kind of construct this definition of efficiency as like aligning with whatever ends up happening on average, which I think if you're really critical in, in, it's almost like a reductio ad absurdum at that point. You know, I mentioned a second ago that I doubt they would formulate this argument publicly. But if you if you force yourself to that point, it's just kind of clear to me, at least, that that doesn't at all reflect, certainly doesn't reflect how any individuals behave. But it, given the all of the, the top level data and markets as a whole are emerging from the interactions of individuals, it can't even possibly explain what's happening at the top level, even though that's where they started. Mm-hmm. And so... Once you're clear about all of this, or at least clearer, in my mind, at least, what it, it's kind of freeing, right? It allows you to just get rid of all of this baggage. Yes. Just think about what do individuals do, or how are individuals behaving? How are they likely to behave? And, and then build up from there. And then to go back to something you mentioned uh, 
a minute ago, maybe a more kind of a tangible way of understanding all of this is uh, the the idea of just outperformance, right? So basically, can you invest in something that is better than the average? Or can you invest in something better than the average for reasons other than blind luck? Yeah. Right? Um, it seems to me just completely obvious that you can because, not that you will, obviously, like it's probably also definitely true that half the people attempting to do it would end up performing below the average, right? But that some people can and that it's not luck because it might be luck as well. But for the people for whom it isn't luck, what they have done is more accurately predicted how individuals are going to behave, what they are going to value and just kind of run that out. Like, okay, well, and you wouldn't just to be clear, like you wouldn't do it on, you wouldn't try to model everything. It wouldn't be like, okay, this person thinks this, this person thinks this, and then kind of, I don't even know what the approach would be at that. Maybe literally build a model and like see what numbers pop out of it. It would be more hypotheses and heuristics about what people in general are likely to do, or even some particular subset, some demographic are likely to value, how they're likely to behave, what else is likely to happen. Ultimately, you're when you take this approach, you're just reasoning about humans. You're reasoning about other people. It's not remotely mathematical, or it shouldn't be really. It's clearly not scientific either. And so that I think that's another thing that rubs up that rubs these people up the wrong way. That if you are starting with the top level data, it's very tempting to do lots of like science, right? Yeah. Or statistics, let's say, and then pretend that the outcome of the statistics is, is scientific. When I would say again, you know, nothing intellectually required for that domain exists, right? You can't have a, you can't measure properly. You can't have a control. You can't isolate the variables because every individual is like their own infinite set of variables. Like is the idea again when you go down to the individual level of trying to mathematize what it is you value is just clearly really silly. So again, back to this point about our performance, all you're really needing to do, I say all like it's easy, it's obviously not easy, but for the ones who do it successfully, what they have done is basically correctly predicted what other people will value or or predicted it more correctly than the average person who's also trying to predict the same thing yes and that seems like kind of obvious that you could do it i guess i mean the example we give in the book you you may have been going to mention this anyway but it's exaggerated on purpose but just to make the point like to make it as accessible as possible is that the I think this is true. At least I checked it when we when we wrote it. That the best performing large cap. You have to make various caveats around this, but uh, the best performing large cap U.S. stock over the 2010s was Netflix. And you could, I suppose, again go through that like ridiculous process of the top down building the model of who's going to do this and what and when and why. Or you could literally just have thought in 2010 streaming is better it is going to win <laughs> which yeah. is essentially even fra- like phrasing it that way which is probably more natural in you know conversational english makes it seem like it's about technology which it kind of is but again it's really just more about people like what you're really that's a commercial proposition that's like people will prefer to get a netflix account than well renting videos i guess but also just you know watching regular linear tv let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. 
The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. What's so interesting about academia and how they've tried to develop math around this, one of the most popular Mm. models that they have is this capital asset pricing model. And so going to your example of CAPM is what this is called. If you go to business school, you'll be definitely be taught this model. You'll have to do these equations. You'll have to figure out the math on this. And taking Netflix as an example, if we could go back to 2010, there's not anywhere in that calculation or in that model where you're talking about streaming, that like the underlying <laughs> asset that's like going to produce the value prop in the future and competitive moat or none of that. Like you're not talking about the IP. Mm-hmm. You're not talking. No, you're looking at how much the price has wiggled around from a volatility standpoint. And then you're looking at the price of everything else on the mar- market and how it wiggled around over some made up period of time from past five years or three years or whatever mm-hmm. arbitrary time you want to select. And then you're plugging that th- this data into the and you're looking at the risk, quote unquote, risk free rate of treasuries. And you're plugging <laughs> these these numbers into this model and then it's telling you 
potentially how much outperformance Netflix is going to have. Again, it assumes, I'm glad I I touched on this briefly. It assumes that that is a scientific domain. It's for that to make any, not even be right, because it could be right by accident, right? But to even make sense, that assumes that everything that went into all those numbers popping out over whatever period you're drawing them from will also be the case in the future. And I actually find it kind of baffling. I'm sort of just, I'm thinking aloud now that none of this is in the book, but if you believe that, like if that made sense to you as a methodology, why would you want to be an investor? Like what is it you even think you're doing? <laughs> I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Uh, well, this I, I is the world. This- a bit less facetiously though, right? I can, I can link this to a couple of things we've mentioned already. So yeah. that approach, the CAPM approach, it assumed be a bit more rigorous about like why the methodology is really silly. It assumes a couple of things other than just kind of being, you know, I called it not scientific, right? It assumes a kind of a static environment. It assumes nothing is going to change. Yeah. Whereas I would say this is like a more, a nicer interpretation of, of that insult I ended on there is that what's fun about investing or one thing that can, that can be fun about it is thinking about what's going to change, right? Like it shouldn't be, I don't think, I mean, I feel really bad for anybody in this position, certainly professionally, that their investment decisions are just the result of like running an Excel or something, just whatever pops out. It's like, oh, I guess that's what we should invest in. I mean, I've never done that. Uh, Sasha's never done that. And, you know, we we like our jobs because it's really interesting thinking about the human angle to you know, like Netflix, for example, but basically anything, right? Which is far more dynamic. So you've got the dynamic versus static. It's also, it requires a, a what would you call it? Like a, a bottom-up analysis rather than a top-down one. So mm-hmm. the, the CAPM, again, is... is exceptionally top down it's only giving you the numbers right you so all these numbers that you have to plug in there's no required understanding of where they came from in the first place it's almost like a non-sequitur to even ask it's like what are you talking about like there's no variable for that where 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 do we put people's values or feelings or whatever whereas the bottom-up approach is obviously starting with thinking about people like what will people want what will they value and it's just, yeah, it's both more appropriate and more interesting as well, I think. The next chat, we could talk about that topic. I could, <laughs> I could literally go on for hours on that last we topic. We just go through, <laughs> go through every one of these CAPM, EMH. Uh, you, you, you did the, the risk-free rate. You, you made fun of that for half a second or so before moving on. <laughs> well, I, I guess if I was going to, we aren't going to move on. So from a first principle <laughs> standpoint, like if I've worked and I've retained buying power, mm-hmm. right? And I'm going to invest that buying power into something. I want to invest in something that is going to produce a product or service that adds efficiency, makes people's lives better because they're freeing up their time. And if I'm looking at it, not from, because that's more of like a VC lens, right? If I'm looking at it as a business that already exists and I'm saying this business is just really saving people a ton of time, it's adding value to way more people. And and my projection is that it's going to continue to outpace their previous amount of efficiencies that they've added to people's lives. And the rest of the market's priced here and this is priced there. I should probably own this because it's going to perform great. Like that's investing to me. And like (laughs) and I know that sounds like really basically controversial. (laughs) But it is controversial. It's not the norm. The norm on Wall Street and people that are actually allocating capital, it is so abstracted away from what we just described. And at least in my opinion, Mm -hmm. it's been abstracted away. But anyway, 
Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's, um, this might sound a bit harsh. It might require like a little bit of elaboration, but it's basically a cargo cult. I, I, you know what I mean by that? No, you know, like yeah, explain that more. Yeah. It's applying methodologies that work in a completely separate domain that seem like they work in this domain, but actually they don't. And actually they don't capture any of the causality that is required to understand this mm-hmm. domain. But they seem very serious. They seem very scientific, basically. That's that's the word I keep coming back to. This. I think that is actually really key to unraveling a lot of not just this efficient markets, but other things that we talked about too. I maybe even trying to link it back to the MMA discussion too, that as soon as you let go of the idea that this even can be scientific, you're just freed up to, I think, appreciate it far more deeply, far more seriously even. So like the MMA angle would be something like this. I think this is good, both in terms of the accessibility, as I mentioned before, but in this case, it's like even more obviously ridiculous. If you rather than just getting different fighting styles to fight each other, you did some kind of statistical analysis on them in isolation and then built a model that would churn out who's going to win. Like, which do you think is better? Should you, you know, do you, do you do the analysis and build the model or do you just let them fight? Mm-hmm. I think you just let them fight. It's superior knowledge that you gain from that. And it's you're, you're freed up to do it if you don't think it's remotely scientific. And I think the, the main difference, because that maybe does seem a bit ridiculous in isolation, but the main difference between that environment and you know investing financial markets is only really the amount of data there is in the first place. I actually, the reason I think is a good example, right? We kind of went through this already, but from a different angle, the reason we like MMA as a comparison so much is that it's just such a great example of competition yielding unpredictable results, right? Like mm-hmm. things you can't model, you can't know in advance, you have to just see what happens. Obviously, none of that data I mentioned, you know, for like building the model exists in MMA. Unfortunately, it does in finance. And so this is where I think the cargo cult element comes in that people start off just with this absolute flood of data and think, oh, I need to do something with this. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I can't ignore this. This is this is important. This must be important. Everyone else is doing something with it. I have to do something with it too. And it's it's incredibly freeing to just say, no, you don't. <laughs> you can just ignore all of it. I promise. So the next chapter, just the titling of this, I wish I could scream this from the mountaintops, Alan. (laughs) And the title is, This is Not Capitalism. And you get into a lot of your opinions on GDP being just such a worthless uh, metric, but it's the Mm -hmm. thing that everybody's hyper-focused on among some other things. But I think that there's, uh, I think this is a really important thing just beyond like some of those in your face metrics from a societal standpoint, where you have these movement, movements of very young generations that are looking at the branding of this is capitalism. They, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And like it's destructive because what they think the label is, is nothing of the sort if they actually we're able to yeah. understand what's the mechanics of of all these crazy terms of backstop facilities and quantitative easing and you name it reverse repo facilities like all of this give us your down and dirty on what you guys were really trying to accomplish with this well that's i mean that's exactly why we named this so this was an article before the book this was i think actually the first article of any that then went into 
uh, some of the chapters of the book. And we wrote it in, I want to say, April 2020. And what we were responding to was just massive bailouts, right? It was the start of the COVID money printing extravaganza. And it was being labeled in popular press, kind of mainstream culture's understanding of this was that this is capitalism. And our, there's quite a few strands to our argument, I think, but the, the simplest version, this is more or less a quote from the book, because I remember the line I'm about to say went in because we were saying it in real life so many times that if anything, the article kind of came out of that, that for something to be capital, like if you're talking about capitalism, it almost doesn't matter what, whatever, or what you're in fact analyzing, anything that has the name capitalism for that to make any sense, be an applicable name. Surely, at least it has to refer to growing stocks of capital. And it can potentially even refer to lots of other horrible stuff. I don't think that's really necessary. That's almost like a kind of an olive branch to people who um, wouldn't necessarily identify positively with capitalism, but but are you know nonetheless seeing the horrors, I suppose. I don't mean to be too dramatic, but you know, seeing what is truly awful about endless money printing and, and some other kind of, I'd say, more obscure, more downstream stuff of fiat banking. Those people who are perhaps even correctly identifying a lot of these symptoms are being told that capitalism is the cause. Mm-hmm. In, in some cases, even by people who you know are the champions of all the activity in the first place, it, a lot of it's kind of apologism. It's it's that oh well, this is what capitalism requires. This is like the occasional downside of capitalism is that yeah, we need to spend a whole bunch of money and save all these people who made terrible decisions. But yeah, our <laughs> our claim is, which I I don't think is even really that controversial because it's not even. It's more just about language than, than about economics, I guess, that if you're calling something capitalism, even before you're criticizing, right, if you're calling it capitalism, you ought to be mindful of how capital is being treated and, and very probably that it's just been lied to you. What you're looking at is, is something else. Hence, this is not capitalism. Well, you do such a great job talking about GDP, right? And so when you're talking- oh, GDP is a great one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You lay this out and you're to help people understand it better. You're saying this is the top line. This would be like me looking at a company and saying, well, their top, yeah, their yeah, top yeah. line keeps expanding. Their top line keeps expanding, but never, never glimpsing at the bottom line and realizing if there's any yeah. actual value accretion happening inside yeah, of yeah. that entity. And from a governmental standpoint, you're saying that these people that are looking at GDP and it's the percent just keeps going up. But they never take a look at the value accretion that's happening and totally ignoring that. I guess the, the effect of this is a focus on the, the incentive of consumption as opposed mm-hmm. to long-term value accretion that yeah. is sustainable yeah. over time is, is what I was trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really glad that you made the comparison to companies' financial statements. I would have done it if you hadn't. And I think actually given you know, your likely audience, right? People with, if not working professionally in finance, I guess, with some kind of background, like highly financially literate, it's, it's an extremely useful comparison to make. I think because maybe similarly to, to the MMA example, that is for most people, it's more accessible, right? That GDP as a macro term feels, I don't know if it feels distant. It only, it feels beyond being able to analyze straightforwardly. Again, it's one of these things where we'd argue, well, no, if you have the right tools, if you have the right methodology, it's not at all. And in fact, 
it compares very, very nicely to the equivalent terms for a company. So just to, to tease that out a bit further, yeah, what you're, I push your argument a little bit further than just leaving it at revenue versus profit. Yes, it's basically saying, oh, revenue's going up. Therefore, that's a good thing. Like that's our, our metric for success, uh, which is kind of obviously silly in its own right. Profit would clearly be better because that means that re- revenue, if you think in like really first principles terms, revenue proves that somebody values what you're doing. Profit proves that you are providing that value efficiently. You're producing more than you're consuming and delivering that value. But the thing you, re- even profit, we would argue is not enough. The thing that you really need is returns. Because it's, it's profit going back into your stock of capital, creating the assets that when operated create revenue. It's that cycle that's important. And so this is the distinction between, I guess, the stocks of capital on the one hand in a company. It's, you know, it's pretty straightforward to calculate these ratios. It does become a bit more abstract in the case of, well, everything, yeah. a country, I don't know, an, an economy, I guess. But sticking to the right principles, I think, is still fairly straightforward. I think the difference is basically you can't really know what the numbers are, but you can still distinguish between you know what you're identifying as good or bad, basically. So, so GDP is purely the revenue and it's purely consumption. It says nothing at all about what I would argue is just real wealth. I think that's the kind of the cardinal sin here is mistaking GDP for wealth. GDP is the effect of the real wealth of a stock of productive capital. It is not itself wealth, and it certainly doesn't cause wealth. So just being really clear on these distinctions, I think, is, I think is really important. There's actually, there's, I don't know if you remember this or if you have this sort of noted in detail, there are two other critiques that we have of GDP that make this even worse. So like that's mm-hmm. everything I just went through there that is like measuring the wrong thing in the first place is only part of the problem. Do you want me to say the other? Yeah, two yeah, you please. Yes, sir. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the second one is that, and actually I'll say even before this, the listeners will pick up a lot of the same threads, like again and again, I won't deliberately go back and link it to MMA every time, but. Again, the reason we introduce MMA is that the more accessible points in that discussion just come up over and over and over again in a really nice way. So the second one is that because it is such a top-down metric, it obscures the individuals it actually refers to. So it's an average that doesn't really exist in terms of the average person it describes. And the reason is basically that it's weighted by consumption. So first of all, it's bad enough that it's just consumption. But it points to an an average individual weighted by the consumption of all the actual individuals, as opposed to a median. Mm-hmm. Just to be really clear, right? Like because like that probably sounded all kind of fluffy and abstract. It's entirely possible, just to like really make the point. It's entirely possible that everybody, bar one person, got poorer or you know, consumed less. But one person consumed so 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 much more that they made up for everybody else's losses, and then GDP would still have gone up. Right. And like our GDP per capita would still have gone up, whereas obviously the median would have would have gone down. And so it's yeah, it, it's kind of not it, it purports to be more democratic, I suppose, in a democratic and a very loose sense in speaking for the average rather than just, you know, the one percent or whatever. But it's actually highly skewed towards the already rich. And, and the example I gave, the kind of deliberately ridiculous example 
isn't even that far off reality. I don't think if you look over certain, you know, if you, if you, if you find the right periods, there are indeed times where more than the, the growth in GDP goes to just some upper percentage. So the entire X percent down have in fact gotten poorer, but the X percent up have gotten richer faster than they've gotten poorer. Again, GDP per capita has gone up. So that's another reason. I wouldn't maybe read too much into that kind of ethically. You could. One could be very offended by this. My point is more, you can only make this mistake in the first place. Again, if you're thinking, if your starting point is very much top-down data Mm -hmm. and and you're Mm -hmm. not clear about where that's leading you. So that's point number two. Point number three is maybe the most interesting of all, that it changes over time in a way that is essentially unmeasurable. This is never really a big deal from, for example, one year to the next. It's still, I'm not claiming like, oh, it just doesn't tell you anything at all. It still clearly does tell you something. But the problem is that every year, and then this is clearly truer on longer and longer time horizons, there are new inventions, right? There are new products, there are new services that come into the overall calculation of GDP. And then there are old ones that drop out. And if you roll your period of time forward long enough, eventually nothing in the old GDP calculation will be in the new one in terms of what is being consumed. Year to year, it's not that big a deal because most of it's still the same. And then the argument, the the kind of, I would say somewhat fallacious argument against what I'm now putting forward would be Oh, but that's fine because there are, you know, it's still the things are repriced, right? There are exchange rates. So you can see how much people value the new thing by how much they're willing to pay for it, which is true in the moment, but it becomes meaningless when everything has changed. And on a long enough time horizon, everything will have changed. So an example that we we give in the book, I'm going to get the exact stats wrong here, but it's kind of along the right lines, is that the GDP of I think it, who was it we chose? I think it was the, the GDP per capita of Vietnamese today, I believe is around the GDP per capita of Americans in the, I forget exactly when, but in the late 19th century. We would also argue it's kind of ridiculous to say that therefore they are as wealthy, mm-hmm. Vietnamese today are as wealthy as Americans were then because every single part of their lives didn't exist for those Americans. And and you would argue is maybe not every single aspect is better, but everything they consume is of a higher quality, I suppose. Is and, and you can it's almost definitionally true because they're choosing to consume these newer things. So like mm-hmm. I think probably one of the more pronounced examples we we gave, I believe, was something like penicillin. There's no and this this kind of winds its way towards like a, a, a nice catchy slogan for this, which is that there's no exchange rates to the future. So you can say, oh, but you can still reprice these things when you do the new calculation. So you can see how much people value them, but you can't, they need to exist before you can value them, right? You can't value something that doesn't exist yet. And so to use GDP as, which is how it's almost always used as well, just to be clear, like, I don't think a good way out of this is like, oh, just don't use it that way. Like, this is all it exists in order to, like, this is the only point anybody ever makes with it is, oh, GDP went up, therefore we're better off. Well, the longer you run this out, the more meaningless it becomes. Yes. So that's problem number three. So it's meaningless or no, it's funnier in the other direction, I guess. Problem number one is it measures the wrong thing. 
Problem number two is it measures the right thing in the wrong way, in a deeply unfair way. And then problem number three is it's meaningless anyway, so who cares? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. 
it's meaningless today and it's going to be even more meaningless tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have a quote in here and I'm going to transition the conversation more to Bitcoin topics. You have a quote in the book that for me personally, as a person that served in the military, this quote is just so profound. After a millennia of compounding technology advances, taking us from swords, shields, longbows, handguns, fighter jets, and atomic bombs, humanity has discovered a technology that only resists and disincentivizes violence and has no other use. This is a big deal. And I I think for people that are not Bitcoiners that are hearing that, it's almost like an eye roll that there's no way that this magic internet money could possibly like reverse human nature of using force and all of those ideas. So lay it on that person. Sure. Well, one thing I'll say up front, I don't want to take too much credit for the thought behind that line. I think it's a fairly, first of all, it's completely understood anybody in Bitcoin. It's one of the first things you wrap your head around. I think the actual source of it probably predates Bitcoin by quite a bit. I, I just, in slightly more abstract terms, I think I probably trace this to the sovereign individual. Although obviously they weren't talking about Bitcoin, they were talking in slightly more general terms about the use of cryptography online. But obviously, Bitcoin is a, the perfect example of this. And I think to a large extent, validation of that thesis as well. So if, if people are interested in this line of thinking, I would go read that book. I wouldn't credit me with this thought. But to your point of, okay, so what do you say to someone who just doesn't take this idea seriously at all? I think probably the best resource for this that I've come across is actually extremely recent, again, because it's just kind of common knowledge within, with, within Bitcoiners for a lot of people. You, you, know, you probably don't even really need to write it down or explain it. But Lynn Alden's new book, mm. Broken Money, explains this very, very well. Yes. So I'd recommend probably people just go buy that, <laughs> go buy that as well. <laughs> and she says it better than I will now effectively try to summarize what she says. But her argument, I mean, one of many, many arguments in that book is that what is different about fiat money with, with the kind of money that we have ended up with now, what is really historically unique about it is that it has reduced the cost of violence to basically zero. And to be fair, actually, this is something that we touched on at the very end of Bitcoin is Venice, but I think Lynn does a far better job of explaining it. And I think the effects of this are so pervasive that it's, it's almost like this is water in a way that you, you can go your whole life without ever actually noticing it. So I, it, in some sense, I understand where the eye roll maybe comes from. But once it's pointed out that, to maybe make it a bit more tangible, that there is now, or there hasn't been for you know, 50 years or so, at least definitely for the US and then less so for the, basically the more allied to the US you are, there is no cost whatsoever to waging war. Previously, like for all of history, to some or other extent, and basically the extent gets less and less the closer you get to pure fiat, a government that wanted to wage a war would require the consent of its populace, the consent of the governed, to fund it by a taxation. And by and large, people really hate that. Like They really don't like being taxed for war. I think a a key turning point in all of this, actually, which Saifedean has done a really good job 
sort of articulating and, and actually with some historical research into this as well, like popularizing this previously apparently just unknown historical fact of what the Bank of England did at the start of World War One. And so Safe has this great line, which is that Bitcoin is the technology that will finally end World War One. And so this is what he's referring to that when so at the time the pound sterling was the world reserve currency. And in order to finance World War One, the Bank of England had to break the peg to gold. But the the way that they the process by which they went about doing this, and this is what Lynn details in Broken Money, like in a lot of detail. She doesn't just mention it; like she really examines this episode. Is that they, in fact, tried to issue war bonds, and they were incredibly unpopular. Which I guess is in part because of the somewhat unusual circumstances that World War One came out of. You know, it wasn't like the UK was being invaded or anything. It's kind of obvious knowing the you know the web of alliances and so on that the british people would not care about this they would not be interested in it but the bank of england just lied they said that the war bond was massively oversubscribed they wrote in uh, the financial times as well it took to propagate this official lie and then the the, the the ft published an apology or like kind of a correction kind of an apology in something like 2017 <laughs> you know more than 100 years later when the records proving it, which had been hidden at the time, were finally dug up from the Bank of England and the Bank of England themselves admitted that this had happened, then the FT was like, okay, well, we can apologize for it too. And so th- this is like really pivotal because the peg to gold was never returned. I mean, no, you know, once any peg to a, to a hard money is broken, you never really get it back. But that's that you could argue that was the first domino that led right the way up to. WCF happened in, in 1971. I'm obviously skipping over an enormous amount there, but that's why you should go read Broken Money anyway. All right, Alan, such a pleasure chatting with you. This has been a blast, but I'm curious, like, what does your next three to five years, like, what do you got in store? What are you working on right now? You always seem to be up to something pretty oh, awesome. God. I don't even know what my next three to five months is going to be like, <laughs> but um, I, can, I can speculate, I guess. So yeah, I mentioned before, I, I used to work at this big asset management company, Sasha still works. I left a little over a year ago to start this company, Axiom. For now, we have a venture fund that is focused on Bitcoin companies or Bitcoin adjacent companies. We did a, a kind of a public launch maybe two months ago now, which, which coincided with just, uh, I guess, maybe some of your listeners will be interested. It was kind of pitched around a, a new piece of writing that I had done, kind of an essay, I, I guess, which is actually the first I'd done since Bitcoin is Venice. I've been saving it up for a while for the launch. Uh, talking about a lot of the same things. The tagline, I guess, is that the killer app of Bitcoin is fixing the cost of capital. So it's you know covering a lot of the same topics that, we, that we've covered now. But I think also... Part of the point was to set out the vision for the business because we have uh, we have this venture fund. You know, we're hoping that we'll be able to raise and launch you know many more down the lines. So long as there is a need for funding in the Bitcoin ecosystem, we want to try to contribute to that. But we also have plans to launch, let's say, more exotic financing instruments for Bitcoin companies. I don't want to say too much more about that now. Just knowing the stage they're at and you know how much of a regulatory nightmare basically every part of that is, I'll wait until they actually exist before I start bragging about them. But, uh, but I'm excited at what we're hopeful we're, we're going to be able to do. And yeah, hopefully contribute to or maybe even take advantage of, I guess, if we're successful enough, uh, Bitcoin fixing the, the cost of capital. I love it. I love that theme and that branding, by the way. 
for people that are not familiar with this book that we were talking about, it's Bitcoin is Venice. Wow. Very, very impressive. I wish I could, to be quite honest with you, I wish I could write like this well. I cannot, like, I promise you, I cannot even come close to this, this level of writing skill. But just an honor and a pleasure to get to know you and to have you on the show and to talk about this amazing book. And thank you for your time for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.